You've heard about this in the past. Christmas Give 2021 is underway. It's our church helping out in four specific areas of need within our community. Parsons School, Chaplaincy, Young People with Young Decatur, and then specifically for those who might be in financial need here at the Christmas season. So for today, I want you to learn a little bit about what we're doing in our chaplaincy ministry, particularly at Memorial Hospital here in Decatur. Here's a little bit of their story. Well, for an introduction, my name is Chris Feith. I'm one of the chaplains at uh, First Christian in their chaplaincy ministry. And primarily I work over at uh, Memorial Health at the, at the hospital. And another place, uh, another couple places I go are at the Crossings Health Clinic here in town and at the Cancer Care Center. Well, a chaplain is a, is a minister a little different than a pastor but primarily in a, in a secular place instead of within the church walls. And there's a lot of study, a lot of uh, specifics uh, that we learn, we go to school for. Um, but one of the main ideas is that the chaplain is one who comes alongside a person in a moment of need, like in our case, many in the hospital bed or in a traumatic situation. And we wanna come alongside them to offer support, to listen to them, and to not try and ask a whole bunch of questions, but let them share and give them support in knowing that they're cared for. The care for the staff is the utmost, especially in these kind of days. And one thing that COVID did help bring in was our opportunity to get into almost literally every office in hospitals and these other uh, facilities. One of the things that's really important that we've that's, that's neat to find out what's going on is the opportunity to allow uh, chaplaincy to move into these second shifts and third shifts. Because right now, just it's just first shift people that we're able to you know, make contact with. But now, uh, through uh, the, the generosity, uh, we're able to set up people to be in a second shift uh, situation. And later on in the evening, and many of those folks, uh, they have never been really attended to. I would say at times might even feel forgotten. And now we're gonna be able to attend to them, all the pressures that they go through. Once you start getting into the uh, later evening, you know, a lot of things can happen too with patients and there will be an opportunity for a, a chaplain to be there to give care. And so it just fills out the rest because at a healthcare facility, the action never stops. And so now there's going to be the opportunity to have care uh, through this, uh, this new uh, generosity for that kind of action. I am thankful to get to be part of a church that is on the front lines of people's darkest hours uh, and their biggest trials. And as I was thinking about that reality of our ministry in the hospital, also recognizing that that's at some level at certain seasons and stages for all of us, 
true, that we have these moments in our lives that uh, we might call our, our most challenging or most stressful realities that uh, we face. And I came across something in light of that uh, here recently uh, called the Holmes-Rahi Stress Scale. And uh, the Holmes-Rahi, it's named after these two psychiatrists who put this, you could say this inventory together based on their connection and the correlation between mental stress that we face in our lives and then they were discovering subsequent sickness and illness in our physical bodies as a result of the mental stress that we feel. And so what the inventory does is, is identifies these events that if true of you, they're assigned a point value. And if the point value reaches certain uh, levels, then your physical health uh, is subsequently in likely some sort of imminent possible challenge. Uh, and so the scale says that if you reach 150 points or more, that you're in the caution zone. It's like a yellow light, like you better start paying attention to your physical health because of the mental stress that you are facing in your life. And that if your point value exceeds 300, well then it's like the alarm bells are going off, red zone, danger zone, uh, real problems are probably already happening or in, imminent in your physical body, even to the point of concern of death. And so, for example, some of those life events and the point values that go with them. The loss of a spouse, 100 points, which makes sense that it would be significant. It's like your entire personal ecosystem is completely turned upside down. Or going through a divorce, 73 points. Uh, major personal injury or illness, 53 points. Um, this one was interesting. Major change in the number of arguments with your spouse, whether, whether more or less, like just a change in it, 35 points. Students, uh, changing to a new school would be 20 points. Or if you're moving to a new home or a new place of residence, 20 points. Uh, or this one, which many of us faced in the last couple of years, major changes in working hours or conditions, 20 points. And all the stress points, they're not necessarily inherently bad. They could be good or bad, but they cause change and potential stress in your life. Uh, this one I thought was super interesting. Outstanding personal achievement, 28 points. The excitement and energy, for example, that goes into a wedding and, and getting married, all good, but tack on 50 points. Getting pregnant, 40 points. And then one that was most interesting and most applicable here to us today, and actually the reason I bring it up in this context, is Christmas. Christmas, automatic 12 extra stress points. And so we all get to cash in on those. It's like a free space on your stress bingo card this season because here it is. We're in December and the countdown to Christmas is officially on. And then I think about maybe the dominoes that kind of fall maybe out of that, that if for you Christmas season means added uh, stress to your relationship, say with your in-laws, 29 points. And if for you, Christmas causes you to incur debt or significant change in your financial situation, you can tack on anywhere from 17 to 38 points. And as we hear that, it's like, okay, all right, I get, I get the idea. Like, yes, yes, I can feel like the stress tallying up within me right now. In fact, you're like probably starting to Google this test to find out where you, where you stand and all this. It's like we get it. Like there's stress in our world and our lives uh, to which we add Christmas as bonus points at the end of it. Um, and I think that's probably why, as we think about our very real lives that we face in real life, in real time, right now, right here, plus Christmas, we struggle. 
we struggle, you could say, to make the connection between the season and the reality of our lives right here, right now, in real time with, you could say, the original Christmas story, which seems like a story that took place in someone else's life in some other place and some other completely different time back then. And we wonder, if we're honest, I think, we wonder what in the world does the story of a baby in a manger on a silent night, on a holy night, where all is calm and all is bright kind of night, what does that have to do with, say, maybe for you, the sleepless nights that you face as you deal with the very real worry and stress and anxiety and just candidly that are a part of your life, but also don't sit nice, neat, and clean on some sort of like stress scale inventory. And then from there, potentially will then lead to, if it hasn't already, challenges in your own physical body and health as well. What is the connection between the first Christmas story and our actual life story? Well, take heart, that's why we're here. I assure you there is a strong connection. There is a strong connection between the first Christmas story and your story that you could say that night that Jesus came, why it was most certainly holy, I would doubt if it was all that calm and quaint, as the lyrics of Christmas carols can sometimes suggest. I mean, think about it, just from the, uh, the stress scale. Mary, she's pregnant, 40 points. What about Joseph and Mary? Significant premarital stress, I'm thinking, at this point. I mean, they're looking at divorce and separation until an angel intervenes, so that's like 73 points. And honestly, I don't know where, like, giving birth in a barn next to a cow on the uh, Holmes-Rahi-Richter scale measures up. But I'm guessing we could tack on a few more points for that. And then what about last week? Pastor Wayne shared with us the realities of that time that King Herod, hearing that there was another king in the mix, uh, is scheduled or has slated for all Jewish boys two years and under to be killed. And knowing that in that, your son is in the crosshairs of that particular edict, Again, murderous threats against your child, not on the inventory, but I'm guessing quite a few extra points for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus as they then flee to Egypt, a new place of residence, 20 points, and on and on we could go. On and on we could go because the story of Christmas was, in its original setting, anything but calm and quaint. It had, obviously, its share of stress from the beginning, and we too, Maybe different circumstances, but also face our own share of struggle and stress in our lives. To which the question remains, why? Like, why is this the world that we live in? Why is this the life that we lead that we have so much, you know, for Joseph and Mary, stress and struggle in their story? For you, for me, for us, why do we have so much stress and struggle in our everyday life? Of which, again, Christmas just tacks on another 12 points to it. Why is this a part of the human experience? Well, it is because we are in a battle. We are in a very real battle, a Christmas battle of sorts, actually, in that we, again, have already painted uh, the situation in the original Christmas story. 
doesn't really necessarily, you could say, match maybe the sets that represent it on our mantles and our lawns with these nativity sets. Uh, if yours is anything like mine, I'm sure you've got a Joseph and a Mary and a baby Jesus. Uh, maybe you've got a couple of shepherds, perhaps some wise men, if you're lucky, a couple of angels, but all of it's surrounded like by like this petting zoo, this sweet, serene setting. But as we've noted, it does not do justice to the stress and the struggle that we uncover in the story that actually took place with the miraculous virgin pregnancy and the chaos surrounding birth in a barn, let alone Herod and his henchmen hunting down your child. And as stressful as all that would have absolutely been and all the struggle taking place right here on earth then and as we even think about our own struggles here on earth now, know that both for then and for us, that on earth story that we're familiar with in the nativity scene it's actually only a microcosm of the bigger story that is at play. It is just a small piece of a much larger story that's taking place. Uh, that while our on earth nativity scene as we know it, it is still good, it's true, it's powerful, it is also incomplete. It is incomplete. And so what I want to reveal to you, I could say, is the rest of the story. Is that, I said this, Paul Harvey, is that the rest of the story guy? Yeah, the rest of the story. Uh, as revealed in Revelation chapter 12, a passage that's maybe one of the most important Christmas passages that exist that you might not have read at Christmas ever before. And so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here in the West Auditorium or the East Auditorium, there's some folks walking around with them. And I think actually online there's a way you can click on and get the Bible passage. And it's on the screen if we're being honest. So it's all going to be here. But Revelation chapter 12, it is the nativity scene that honestly it doesn't make the mantle, but it speaks specifically to the advent or the anticipation of Jesus' future coming as rooted in the realities and the revelation of his first coming. And so Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And this is the nativity scene you may not have read before, but is just as important, if not more so. Revelation 12, verse 1 says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So this woman here, it represents the church. This is us, the church. It says, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Okay, so this is the devil, this is Satan. Uh, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. And so that third of the stars is a third of the angels that he takes with him. It says the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child. And so this is Jesus, the Messiah. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. 
He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Okay. Philip Yancey, he says, I have never seen this version of the story on a Christmas card. Yet, it is the truer story. The rest of the picture of what was going on that fateful night. He goes on, it's almost beyond my comprehension too. And yet I accept that this notion is the key to understanding Christmas. It is in fact the touchstone, the keystone of my faith. You see, as a Christian, he says, I believe that we live in parallel worlds. One world consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. And the other consists of angels and sinister forces and the whole spiritual realm. And maybe you're sitting here thinking like, whoa, 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 time out. Like, okay, I, I, I believe in God and his son Jesus, but like sinister forces and, and Satan like, like as an actual being? Like, sure, I, I get it. Like the devil uh, represents like this generic or general understanding of the personification and representation of evil and darkness in our world, but like, like an actual being, like, like the guy with the horns and the pointy tail and the pitchfork kind of thing. And oh my, how Satan, how Satan, which his name actually means the deceiver, P.S., how the deceiver would love for nothing more than to deceive us into thinking uh, this very misunderstood reality that is not reality about his not being. That we would just relegate him to some type of cartoon character, to be dismissed, to be ignored, to be just ignorant of. But may I remind you that the word of God, the same word of God that teaches us and reveals to us all things good, all things good about God and his son Jesus and his coming at Christmas, Emmanuel to be with us and then grows up and his teaching and his forgiveness and his grace that happens in his death at a cross and then his resurrection to a new life so that we can be given the gift of a new life both in this life and for all of eternity. That the same word of God that we put all of our understanding, authority, hope and trust and belief and faith in regarding all things good, know that it is the same truth, it is the same authority that also sounds the alarm. It sounds the alarm about the very real evil one, the deceiver, the devil. The apostle Peter in his letter to the church says it this way in 1 Peter 5. He says to the church, to us, be alert, be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, as in not a symbol, not a sign, not a stand-in for the representation of evil and darkness in our world. Your enemy has a name, Satan, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6.12 uh, shakes us awake in this plea with us to know that our struggle, our struggles, it is not against flesh and blood, God's word says, but it's against 
the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what our world is. And then Revelation 12, it goes on more of this. to Verse 17, it says that then the dragon was enraged at the woman, enraged at the church, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, to the, against those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. That's who the church is, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. And again, you might be thinking like, whoa, like, I'll be honest, I just wanted a cup of coffee, some Christmas carols, and maybe a nice Christmas thought from the pastor, like, what is happening right now? What kind of Christmas sermon is this? And I would just ask you, do you really want to recover Christmas? I mean, we all talk against like, oh, the commercial Christmas, or the things, or the things of this world that doesn't seem quite right. Do you really want to recover the realities of God, Emmanuel, Jesus with us in our lives in its totality against the realities of everything you see in this world that you know is not right? And then even more specifically, all the things you see in your own life that you know are not right. Do you want to recover the realities of Emmanuel, Jesus with you in your life? Then we must also understand the realities of there is a very real enemy on the other side of that. And that enemy is not flesh and blood, it's not Santa on a scooter, it is not things of this world, they are the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world. I appreciate the way that Master, or Pastor John Mark Comer puts it. He says that if we believe that it is Jesus' will that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, well then know that equally is true is Satan's will is on earth as it is in hell. Turn back to Ephesians chapter, Ephesians, it doesn't matter, just the book of Ephesians. Um, I've been, this past week I've been actually reading through the book of Ephesians uh, just over and over and over again each day. Um, And so yeah, you turn back, because you're in Revelation, so I'm super smart, I know it's before that. Um, (laughs) Ephesians, and so uh, basically as I've been reading, so Ephesians chapter one through three is just this, it's a great manifesto for what it means to be the Christian life, this, this six chapters, this uh, letter of Ephesians. But the first three chapters are just reminding us of the power and the strength and the goodness of who our God is and our identity in him. And then Ephesians 4 is like, okay, since all this is true about who we are in Christ, Ephesians 4 is like, now go get him. Like, go live this kind of life. And then Ephesians 5 starts to talk about, okay, here's how it plays out like in our marriages and raising kids and at our jobs and all this stuff. But in the middle of that, it says, if all of this is true, it says in chapter 5 verse 14 then wake up it says wake up O sleeper this is real and then chapter 6 again as we've already looked at verse uh, 12 because our struggle our stress it is not against flesh and blood wake up what you face in your life it might manifest itself in flesh and blood but it is not a battle against flesh and blood Kids, your parents are not the enemy. 
Parents, your kids are not the enemy. It's not against flesh and blood. Spouse, your spouse is not the enemy. Your boss, your coworker, your employee, not the enemy. Kids, that kid at school, actually not the enemy. That personality on the radio or on the news that for whatever reason you keep listening to even though they push your buttons and drive you crazy, not the enemy. The person on the other side of the political aisle, not your enemy. Even your own physical body, the scriptures talk about, that, 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 that we are deteriorating, like actually your body is not your enemy. There is something bigger, illness and ailments, a part of this, like it, not the enemy. Even your own thoughts and your honor of circumstances, your stresses, your, your struggles, Ephesians 6, 12, all of this, not the enemy. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world. So Ephesians 5.14, wake up, O sleeper. You are on a battlefield. Frederick Buchner, he says that reality can be harsh. And you can shut your eyes to it, but only at your peril. Because if you do not face up to the enemy in all his dark power, well, then the enemy will come up from behind some dark day and destroy you while you are facing the other way. And so what do we do? What do we do in light of this super encouraging, uplifting Christmas message that we're all hearing today? What do we do with this? Where do we go if this is true, if this is real, and this battle and all that? Well, let me remind you, Ephesians 1 through 5, all about the power and the strength of Christ, not our own. And then within that, even though it manifests itself in battles, like it says in here in our marriages and raising kids and places where we work and everything we do, that Ephesians 6, the last chapter of that book, it doesn't only point out who our enemy is against, as in not flesh and blood, but the powers of this dark world, but also gives us how to go to battle. How do we fight the enemy that is before us? And so Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10, this is how we are commissioned to fight the battle that is not against flesh and blood, but against one enemy, Satan the devil. It says this, finally, be strong in the Lord, in his mighty power. Meaning it's not your strength, it's not your power. Elsewhere it says it's only in your weakness do you understand the strength that you have in God. And do so by, verse 11, putting on the full armor of God. Not your armor, God's armor, so that then, with God's armor on you, you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Because remember, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers in this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, when you don't get caught looking the other direction, that you may be able then to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, it says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And if you're familiar with that passage, it goes on to give us all kinds of other pieces of armor that speak to God's 
righteousness, the armor of righteousness, which is choosing to live in God's will and ways as laid out in his word. Uh, the armor of the gospel, the good news, the reality that we are forgiven, that we are reconciled to God both in this life and the next, the peace that that brings. And then the armor of faith and of salvation and of the word of God and of prayer. And so this whole passage, it could be, it could be a whole sermon series in and of itself and, and maybe one day here in the days ahead it will be. But for today, for today, let us start where the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church, where he starts, as we start together with verse 14, with the belt of truth buckled around our waists. And so with that, I wanna challenge you. I wanna challenge you over the next uh, 20 days, uh, I said 21 days last service because it was true last night, it's Saturday, but apparently there's only 20 days till Christmas, uh, starting today. Over the next 20 days to every day between now and Christmas, to be intentional, to intentionally each day take some time to buckle truth around your waist. Uh, some might call it a devotional time or a quiet time, which I've said before I never really like because every time I hear the word quiet time with Jesus, I feel like I'm in the timeout chair and I did something wrong, so I have to go spend some time talking to Jesus like he's the principal. That's, that's not how it works. I wanna challenge you, I wanna encourage you, not in a timeout kind of sense, but in a connection sense, to connect with God through his word and through the way he offered us to communicate with him through prayer, his word and prayer. And just encourage you what actually does take place in a quiet time, again, because it kind of feels kind of lame. Uh, I came across uh, some understanding of it from a, an author by the name of John Eldridge uh, in a book he wrote called Wild at Heart. It's actually a book that our men's mentoring ministry just got done going through here throughout the church. Uh, but he talks about a quiet time in this way. And he, it's directed at men because it's a book for men, but what he's saying here is absolutely transferable for men, for women, and for all of us of all ages. This is how he says it. And true for us all, he says, most men, they have a hard time sustaining any sort of devotional life because it has no vital connection to recovering and protecting their strength. It feels about as important as flossing. But if you saw your life as a great battle and you knew you needed time with God for your very survival, well, then you would do it. And maybe not perfectly, nobody ever does, and that's the point anyway. We're not perfect, God is, okay? But you would have a reason to seek him. And see, we give half-hearted attempts at the spiritual disciplines, uh, these connection to God pathways, if you will, uh, when the only reason we have is that we ought to. But we will find a way to make it work when we are convinced that without it, we're history. We're toast if we don't. And so the point is not some dutiful homework or anything that resembles like the timeout chair with Jesus. It's about connecting with God as your very lifeline. And there's dozens, probably hundreds of different ways in which that could play out to do what they might call spiritual disciplines or I just prefer just a pathway to a connection with God. Uh, but I wanna give you just a few ideas to kind of get you off dead center if that's something that is not a part of your daily life that you are seeing the essentialness of making that a part of your daily life for the next 20 days and uh, maybe go 21 days. They say it takes 21 days to form a habit. That's why I was trying to start it yesterday but apparently I got my days to Christmas wrong. Um, but honestly, you know, I don't know how many days it takes to make a habit. I'm convinced that a habit takes as long to make as long as until it no longer is a habit anymore. 
And so you just gotta keep doing it to make it a habit. So anyway, whatever. All right, so here's some ideas for the next 20 days. Uh, I would encourage you first maybe take advantage of the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, it's, a, it's a digital Bible that you can have on your phone or on the computer. And I'm not even necessarily suggesting you need to read your Bible on uh, a phone or anything. I try to actually put that away. I still wanna use a physical Bible. But what it has on there, the secret sauce, I would say is just hundreds and hundreds of devotional and reading plans. Uh, they've got a bunch just for Christmas that are like 21 days long. They've got uh, every book of the Bible. They've got hundreds of topics that could just fit right where you're at reading plans, some devotional stuff to get you started, and some prayer prompts. So I would strongly encourage that. If you have no idea where to start, that would be a great place to start. You can go find that, firstdecaturorg slash Bible. It'll take you right to it. Um, maybe for you this next week, you wanna do what I did this past week. You just maybe take in the book of Ephesians. Uh, read those six chapters. I, I'd encourage you to read them every day. Uh, maybe just chapter six, the armor of God every day. And just, it's this manifesto of what it means to live this life based on the strength of God within us and all the good stuff that comes with it. Uh, maybe for you, you just wanna pick out maybe just a verse or a very short passage that you just drill in on and you just kind of meditate and read and pray on each day. If the weather stayed nice, you could go on prayer walks, just kind of take it in that way. Or maybe for you, you just, it's like two or three worship songs that you just need to put on repeat in your mind so that this truth is just being spoken into you over and over and over and over again. The, the means, the approach, whatever it is, is not the point. The point is to recognize that the battle is real. And so what are you doing each day to prepare for the battle that's coming your way by putting truth around you in everything? Because we need to prepare for battle as if the battle is real because it is real. And the first weapon we have is the truth of God in us, around us. And so with that, I wanna give you a final word. And um, a final word, it sounds almost like a, like, like a disclaimer or a, like a footnote, but it's actually not. This is actually the most important reality when it comes to the foundational understanding of what all this spiritual battle and warfare is that we all have to understand before we step into this. And this is the most important thing right here, that when it comes to the war that we are facing, uh, I love the way that Pastor Chip Ingram in his book, The Invisible War, says it. He says that as believers in and as followers of Jesus Christ, that know this, you do not fight, these battles, you do not fight for victory, you fight from victory. You understand the difference? We don't fight for victory. We're not gonna go up against Satan and we're gonna battle him and we're gonna do him and we're gonna defeat him. No, we don't do that. It's only in our weakness that his strength is made known because the reality is that Satan has already been defeated. The win is already ours. The victory is ours. And so we, as Chip Ingram says, in Christ we are invincible because the victory is already won. It is his and thus it has been bestowed onto us. It is ours. We fight not for the victory, but we fight from the strength of the already victory. Okay, and if you're like, who's Pastor Chip Ingram and all these other people? Well, let's just go with the word of God one last time. And I wanna invite you to do so. I want you to invite you to stand with me here in this room in the East Auditorium. And even if it's your home, I think you've been sitting too cozy long enough. I think you all gotta stand at home too. Someone hold somebody accountable there, okay? All right, I don't care if it's a computer or a phone. This is kind of a tradition kind of throughout the history of the church is the standing for the word of God. And so we stand in the word of the Lord. Revelation chapter 12 goes on. This is the victory. This is the front victory that then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of our Messiah. 
of his Messiah, of our God. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, the accuser, the deceiver, he has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus, and by the word of their testimony, the truth that is among us. Therefore, rejoice. This is Christmas. Rejoice, you heavens, and all you who dwell in him. May it be, and may it be. Heavenly Father, that's what amen means. It means may it be, and we say amen. May this truth that is already true because the victory is already ours in you be ever present by the power of your Holy Spirit. We don't need to be convinced that something needs to happen. We need to wake up to the realities that are already true in the victory that is ours in Christ as we face not battles against flesh and blood that like to play out in flesh and blood and our thoughts and our minds and our hearts and our anxieties and our worries and our stresses and our struggles. They play out there, but God, we realize that the battle is bigger. It's happening behind visible scenes in an invisible space, but is very, very real. And so Father, we say in the name of Jesus, not in this house, not in these homes, and not in this collective home, this family you have knitted together as First Christian Church. Satan has no play in here because you said so. In the name of Jesus, by the blood of the lamb, by the sacrifice of Jesus, as we pray all the time, deliver us from the evil one because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen.